Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. and welcome back to another episode of Temporary Admission. This week we're joined by not one, but two guests as we take our artist spotlights up a notch. So I'm currently sat here with London-based artist and Royal Academician Rana Begum, and the architect behind her new home and studio, and founder of Spatial Affairs, Peter Cully. Thank you very much for joining us today, guys. Well, thank you for asking me. Yeah, it's nice to hear from you, James. No problem. Well, it's, it's our pleasure. And Look, Rana, why don't we start with you? Because I think our conversation might make a little bit more sense if we do so. But are you able to tell us a little bit more about you and your practice? Because I don't know about Peter, but it does seem that everywhere I look, your name seems to be popping up at the moment, whether it's, you know, the RA or a new exhibition at Christie Roberts or whatever it may be. It just seems to be Rana Begum um, popping up all over London. So it'd be good to know a little bit more about you. Yes, yes, there's quite actually quite a few things going on in London. They started a while ago and things have just kind of come together at the same time. So the last few months have been quite busy here in the studio. So my work, I would say, I, I describe myself as a visual artist and I work with various different kind of materials and my work kind of stems from painting, sculpture and architecture. And I like working in a three-dimensional way and I use a lot of colour. I think it's the colour as well that really attracted me to your work in the first instance. But I'm interested, how was it that you got into being an artist and what was that process like for you? I mean, the way I got into art was was because when I first arrived to the UK, I was I think I was around eight years old, and I had, you know, I couldn't speak English, I couldn't read or write English, and so it it took me a long time to really grasp the language. Um, so I would spend, you know, I had I had amazing teachers that basically gave me lots of pencils and paper and I ended up just drawing daily um, drawing what my life was like growing up in Bangladesh and drawing things you know here and I think it was a way of communicating and it really allowed me to actually interact with my peer and my teachers and that's how it started. And then I've continued to have amazing support um, throughout school and university and and continue to have encouragement. And yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it wasn't easy growing up as an artist and being a Muslim female artist. Usually, you know, at a certain age, you know, you go through arranged marriage and you have kids and you don't women it's really difficult for women to have careers and particularly in art as well it took a little bit of work to convince my parents to let me study art and when I did I mean my father was amazing I remember actually applying for my degree at Chelsea and um and just freaking out and not knowing how I was going to take my work uh, to the interview. And, you know, my father kind of surprised me by hiring, um, you know, a man with a van, basically. And I was able to go to my interview with so much work that actually it didn't fit into the interview room. I had to ask the panel to come out and look at the work. And I remember actually them saying, you know, why aren't you doing architecture? And I remember saying, actually, art gave me a lot more freedom. And I think what's so interesting there is that actually the Royal Academy spotted that link to architecture within your work, I guess, so early on. And 
you've now been quite heavily involved with the summer exhibition, which obviously we spoke about slightly earlier with Axel Ruger. Uh, in a previous episode, but you worked on the two architecture rooms there, didn't you, this year? Yeah, so um, Alison Wilding is this year's coordinator, and I was one of the artists that was selected to do one of the rooms. And Neil McLaughlin was the architect selected to do the architecture room. And when Alison was actually talking about uh, the theme of this year's this year's uh, summer exhibition, which is climate. Both Neil and I immediately thought about Marina Tabassum, and and so we were very excited and wanted to kind of um, bring her on board for for the project. And and actually, after the meeting, Neil and I continued to have a conversation, and Neil suggested that we collaborate. So we brought our rooms together and merged kind of art and architecture together, if you like. And it was good. It was really interesting, and I think it gave us a bit more, you know, kind of conversation in terms of the way we should really be thinking about climate. And I guess we should just point out at this point that. For those of you that haven't had a chance to listen to our previous episode, the theme of the summer exhibition at the Royal Academy this year is climate. But Rona, what did those two rooms look like or what can our listeners expect if they were able to go and have a a look inside? There are two rooms which are kind of painted kind of this dark, kind of dark blue. And there are three large scale works. And one of them is Marina's house that um, could be dismantled and um, assembled again and kind of relocated depending on the water level, right? And it's incredible. It's this this structure. And actually, you know, at the moment, it's the monsoon season. And obviously, there's been a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of deaths and because of the um, flooding and everything. So it's, it's actually there. Um, and being used currently as well. And so it was really important for us to kind of really bring to forefront, you know, how architecture can be used to kind of help resolve issues with, you know, climate change. And then you've got Boonson who are um, looking at material and they're using elephant dung to create this beautiful structure um, in the space. And the other is Webb Yates and the stonemasoners are working together to deal with climate crisis in a different way, kind of almost kind of a preventative way. And how we can use materials that already exist, we, you know, how we can minimise the impact on our planet by using materials that is much more available. Um, so, you, you know, using, not using concrete or steel to build structures. So their structure kind of runs through, you know, one of the room. I think that's one of the things that's quite nice about the summer exhibition, though, is that there's so many voices coming together to kind of share different ideas or you know, different approaches on different topics. Yeah, there is. And, you know, and the other thing is obviously the art. And there are invited artists like Rashid Arin, Laura Gannon, um, Nathaniel Racco and Alex Gribaldi and Ben Rivers and Simran Gill. So they're kind of international group of artists that have been invited also um, asked to apply and you know the art was really important that there was conversations happening in the space between the artwork between the models between films you know so there's lots of different medium and I think you know I like the idea that people are able to walk through and see the connections, see the conversations that are happening in regards to climate change. I think one thing that's quite interesting, and honestly, Peter, don't worry, we we will get to the um, the crooks of architecture soon, I'm, I'm sure. But I'm just interested, just whilst we're on the topic of the Royal Academy, Rana, it feels like a lot of institutions I mean maybe the ones that we've spoken to specifically are running exhibitions on climate at the moment I mean we've had the Barbican run the Our Time on Earth exhibition which obviously we sat down and chatted about a little bit earlier in the season and 
we've also got you know the summer exhibition at the RA and there's there's a lot going on around the conversation of climate which is obviously you know a good thing but how effective do you think it is or how do you think the Royal Academy have been successful in tackling their theme as climate because they've done it a bit differently and I think you know to their success actually maybe around focusing on climate and then you know in terms of the environment but then climate more broadly oh as a as an institute um i think that would be um for axel to actually respond to that but i think you know i think what's good is that it's it's at the forefront of everyone's agenda to tackle to address the issue and I think Royal Academy is doing as, you know, I think is part of that process. But I think what's really good is that a lot of effort is being made. I, I don't know if it's necessarily if all the right things are being done, but I know from meetings and so forth, you know, all the RAs are definitely pushing for changes to be made. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you on that because I think, from our conversations with Axel, and I think not all of it was mentioned on the podcast, but there's definitely a lot being done behind the scenes on, you know, how exhibitions can operate more sustainably and actually, you know, how institutions as well are holding themselves actually to, to an account in, in more cases. And that was also the case with the Barbican as well, you know, launching their their own environmental plan and, and having that in place. So I think that's that's definitely been successful, but I think it's also quite nice with the Royal Academy and we touched on it slightly earlier around the idea of bringing in those different voices and actually by the, by the Royal Academy being able to do that they're approaching climate in quite a different way because you're allowed to or able to see different aspects or different thought processes on how you can tackle kind of the same matter and I think that's quite powerful. Yeah I think you know the great thing about the summer exhibition is that you know uh, the voices that you're hearing isn't the voices that you always hear. You know, you've got certain, um, uh, you know, calibre of artists that you're always seeing, You're and, you know, my name included, you know, you're always seeing and you're always hearing. But what's great about the summer exhibition is that actually the voices come from all over UK, um, and in some cases internationally. And what's really wonderful is that, that you know, you're able to bring this under one roof. You know, I don't think any other institute is able to do that in the same way. And I think that's, you know, I think it's so important. And especially, you know, for Neil and I, when we worked together uh, on the two rooms, it was so important for us to kind of be hopeful and look at solutions. And yes, there are some architects that have submitted um, models and drawings that really doesn't reflect what needs to happen. But there are also architects that are working, engineers and designers and artists that are working and are trying to shift things and I think that's where our focus was and we wanted to kind of really work together and bring that. Well, I think now would probably be a good time for us to loop Peter back into the discussion because obviously we're all here today to chat a little bit more about the interplay between art and architecture. And Peter, before we kind of go into that in more detail, if you know, if someone was to Google you now and find out a little bit more about kind of who you are and what it is you've been up to, you know, They'd see that you designed, you know, museums or you've sat down with So House to talk about, you know, brutalist architecture. And you've got kind of a wealth experience designing spaces for, you know, cultural institutions or those within the arts, which is, you know, obviously you designed Rana's home. But do you want to maybe tell us a little bit more about you and, and what it is you do and how you got to where you are today? How I got where I am today <laughs> sounds very grand. Um, how I literally got where I where I am today in Wales is coming off a train and cycling up a mountain, which is quite nice. So yeah, so I'm here in a, a teaching capacity. I'm an architect, but I do get involved with different universities 
teaching architecture. I uh, have spent quite a lot of time in the US, um, although I'm from the UK, and now I'm back more in the UK. But as a result, I think I have, um, you know, a culture that exists across both countries. And um, so I have a practice that has probably got, although it's not a large or, you know, sort of set up a large infrastructure it's got tentacles in different in different avenues but i suppose um going back to the original question i worked in in offices that in cultural various cultural settings one distinctly architectural and one distinctly landscape and i think those both had had an effect on my personal trajectory but uh, yeah i kind of there is a a, a continual echo of um either cultural projects or clients that are deeply embedded in certain cultures, let's say. Mm, I just think it's really interesting because I don't know about everyone else listening to the podcast, but when I think of an architect, I, you know, automatically just go to the more residential, you know, extensions that people do to their homes or, you know, you know, if I think more broadly, I'd go to grand designs kind of territory. But you don't necessarily think of people that, you know, are behind designing places like museums and public institutions and that's actually a fascinating area of architecture that I haven't even considered until we started to you know have conversations about coming on the podcast would you say they're the kind of typical projects that you're dealing with typically I think it's more in a in a sort of hybrid setting but um yeah the larger projects are much more uh, yeah I would say a, a a kind of cultural form so either in a classic way like a museum or an arts organization that is bringing people in to to understand a particular uh, presentation of art or art communities i've recently worked on a, a large project in memphis for example that was that but it also was art residencies and providing facilities for the local community to be able to make art and film and music and so um yeah quite often i think the programs aren't absolutely you know sort of distinct to say like this like the classic museum thing and even actually if you think of a museum they tend to be quite hybridized programs that have cafes and libraries and conservation departments as well as exhibition anyway so another project a, a large project that i'm working on is really looking at a city as a cultural and physical trail, but partly reinterpreted through public art, for example. So that's a cultural and civic project. It doesn't have enclosed space in a in a classic way as part of that, but it has architectural moments and suggestions. So I'm not trying to um, avoid. <laughs> committing but um I, I just have a practice that is across quite different scales and maybe different types of clients one of which was obviously rana because you designed her new home but rana i'm interested from your point of view have you kind of always been interested in architecture as well as art or was that kind of something that maybe developed later on in your practice yeah I mean, I, I've always been interested in architecture and and that's kind of come through, you know, drawing and looking at spaces and working with my hand physically with material and, you know, and it's through the interest of material and looking that um, that kind of connection has been built up. But I think generally now everyone is interested, doesn't matter what discipline you're in, is interested in each other, interested in having conversation and dialogue and opening, you know, up doors for collaboration. And I think, you know, it's a really good thing. And I think it's great if it can continue because I think we can all benefit from that. And I'm I'm excited. I feel like as an artist, we shouldn't be pigeonholing ourselves and we shouldn't be kind of putting up walls. No, definitely. And I think something that's interesting is obviously that you and Peter recently sat down at the Pittshanger Manor and had a very similar conversation to the one that we're having today around how 
architecture can influence art and vice versa. But I wonder, are either of you able to tell us a little bit more about what that conversation entailed for those of you know us that weren't able to make it? That conversation, I felt was really important because it kind of really informs the kind of dialogue that I have um, you know when I'm working or collaborating with someone and it felt very collaborative you know even though this building that Peter has designed it's it's his baby and it's his thing and I really did hand over I was very much a client I thought it would be another opportunity to really open up our conversations that we were having. I think kind of that's what's nice about also the experience that you and Peter have had when designing kind of your home, because it hasn't been, I guess, the standard architect-client kind of working relationship in the sense that the project's been done and completed in a very short space of time. And it's been a very standard build because, you know, from the pictures I've seen, it's anything but that. But are you able to tell us a little bit more about kind of how you found working with Peter and the design process and how it was that, you know, Peter helped you to create your dream home that is, you know, quite architecturally groundbreaking, I guess. I really liked his approach as well. He spent a lot of time with me and my children and observing how I work in my studio Um, So I used to live and work on the site before it was demolished. And so he kind of observed how my children were in the space and how they how they really needed me to kind of separate my work and living space. Um, And then he observed how I worked with my team when I had the studio in Haringey. And that was on two levels, which meant that we were really organized and were more efficient and we were able to kind of really function as a team as well yeah I think that's very important I think that that was really helpful for me and it was really interesting for us to have a have that conversation especially after you know having finished the development after 10 years it took us 10 years from purchase to planning, to demolition, to uh, development. God, 10 years, it's terrifying. What a labour of love. It definitely is. And so the building, actually, um, the way it's designed, it, it has a living and as well as workspace. So as you come into the muse, it's really discreet. It's right at the back of the muse and it kind of, the space is slightly L-shaped. Um, so you walk underneath um, a building and you, uh, you know, ha- you, you're kind of faced with the entrance, which splits, either goes into the studio or goes up into the flat. And the studio is on the two level. On the first level, on the ground level, is two studio spaces with a spray booth and an office. And, um, and we... You know, we need space to document and create work, but we also need space to make work that is, you know, isn't very dusty and we can keep clean and and stuff like that. So, and then the basement has become uh, more kind of, you know, dusty kind of storage space. I mean, it's a pretty special space though, when you look at it. But Peter, from your point of view as the person who obviously designed the space, What's kind of your perspective on the build? And obviously 10 years, as as Rana mentioned, is, well, it seems like an extremely long time, but I don't know the intricacies of what was involved. Are you able to share a little bit more about kind of how you experienced the build on your side as architect rather than the client? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, first of all, that time uh, issue, let's say the 10 year time issue because I'm sure that sounds horrifying to <laughs> a lot of people listening to. And you sort of think, oh, my God, did it take 10 years to build it? Or, But it's a te- we're talking about a 10-year process that has uh, very intense periods and then probably quite long periods where, you know, maybe Rana and I weren't even particularly in contact because, you know, she was going away and building her career partly you know, that was required in order to be able to move to next stages. 
of um, of design, you know, let's say in economic terms, but also in knowing what the design should be, and then to a point where it could actually really seriously consider construction, because it was, you know, a sort of am- fairly ambitious project, maybe for anybody, because we were really pushing the site. I would say we were pushing the site to its maximum, given that it doesn't have Uh, It doesn't have very easy access, so that makes things tricky for construction. It has uh, lots of neighbours, 12 party wall awards, meaning you've got 12 neighbours to negotiate with, which is a huge number. You know, you might normally think of two or three maybe in London, but 12 is a bit crazy. And also there were not many places you could even have windows because there were so many neighbours. See, that's surprising though, because you look at the building and especially from the interior it's so light and bright and um well i certainly thought there were windows everywhere you've got those huge expanses of glass in the kitchen and coming in through the ceiling you've got light flooding in kind of from all angles so a lot of the light is actually i'm not sure it's totally obvious um because i don't know i think one just of experiences and absorbs light you don't necessarily try and work out exactly where it's coming from if there's plenty of it (laughs) Um, but a lot of the light is coming from above and even in the rooms where we could have windows which are those massive windows onto the cemetery the beautiful view to the east um, abney park cemetery because it's so thick with trees weirdly there's not that much light coming from those big windows and it's the few roof lights that are around that space um, that I think give the very, you know, clear sense of, or, or let's say um, a, a sense of very clean light that pervades. And when you get sunlight into the space, it's typically coming from those roof lights because as I said, the, the big windows are actually facing east. So um, there are a lot of tricks. I, I think we almost talk about a project like that, the, the architectural enclosure or envelope is another way it's described it almost defines a sort of light instrument you can imagine a box on a table where you cut holes in you know at the sides and above and shine lights through you know from the outside you would have a but you would be able to look into a box that was a sort of instrument of light like looking at light physics in a way and i think a, a project like that to me it feels like a of course, it looks like a house in some ways, and it's got all sorts of other things in it, like kitchens or beds or toilets. But on, if you sort of close your eyes and imagine it, uh, hopefully you can understand what I mean. It's almost like a, a a sort of receptacle for light, because if you imagine you cut holes in the right places with a scalpel knife into a box and then put it outside in the sun, you would see during the day that light, falls in different ways, sunlight arrives in different ways, diffuse light affects the face in different ways. And I think you have to approach a building like that in that way rather than what a conventional, you know, any conventional building looks like, but but particularly not what you imagine a conventional house might look like. And how did you find working with Rana? I know obviously we've got Rana with us today, but I'm more mean in the sense that Obviously, Rana is so kind of acclaimed within her field of being an artist and obviously has that interplay with architecture, you know, more prominently now, especially more recently. But how did that work? Because I can imagine you both had quite strong, you know, creative views or quite strong visions of how you wanted the space to look like. And I can't imagine that was the typical kind of architect client relationship yeah it's interesting i've talked to rana about this before but often a client who's less architecturally what would you call it uh, minded would push and to be involved more i think actually the the way it worked quite well was i i could very clearly see rana as her you know, as her artist self. And I think she could very clearly see me as my architectural self. And so we, 
I mean, I understood by observing how she worked, what her sort of practical needs were, if you like. And also she came to visit um, one project of mine that was a, quite a small, very compact flat in London where everything was very sort of packed away. Everything was spoken for in terms of storage space. And it meant that the surfaces were very calm and everything felt like it flowed together. And I know, you know, I think as an architect, you observe how clients or potential clients respond to decisions you've made and that guides you. And so I could tell, you know, one, what she needed to work. I've learned more and more what she needed also to live because Iran always mentions that I'd spent a lot of time working in amongst them so I could observe, but also, uh, yeah, the kind I grew to know the sort of things she she liked in terms of existing within different architectural spaces. It wasn't it wasn't like we collaborated and sat there trying to you know come up with designs together at all. I mean, I would present designs. I think she was good at understanding you know presentations because she does have a spatial um, you know strong spatial awareness and ability to understand which is quite complicated often for clients because they might look at a drawing or even a, a you know a sort of rendered view of a space and i'm quite often surprised with how they're interpreting that <laughs> compared to what i'm expecting they will see because i already know you know i know all the spaces three-dimensionally in my head and when I'm putting a render out to like a view out of it, it's purely to, to try and explain what I already know to someone else. And so there is, there is really a lot of space for misinterpretation. So I think it was quite straightforward with Rana, you know, and understanding um, what we would present and then, you know, adjustments that would be required as a result. But that aspect of the process, I think, was very straightforward, clean, and sort of respectful in terms of the role. So, and also, I just think we had an affinity in terms of what the kind of architecture that you know I like to make and she liked to experience. I do think that was quite. Um, you could feel that quite strongly. And that's not always the case, you know. So that, having said that, she had some surprises when it was, you know, when more and more was getting unveiled and scaffolding coming off. I mean, good, nice surprises. But, um, you know, the exterior of the building is quite sculptural. It's subtle, but it's quite sculptural. There are no vertical or horizontal faces on the exterior of the building. It's all sort of gently slanted with, what I describe as pleats, where two inclined planes join. If it, it's a bit like um, you will see in a shirt, that to get the shapes you need, you have to cut the fabric and make a clean uh, seam. And so although we had presented, we didn't do that initially. Initially, and that's kind of the way I work, I work quite from the inside and get the volumes right and then start to adjust the facade and the massing um, to get the sort of identity of the building from the outside. It's all, again, a bit like, um, let's say, clothing uh, or, or, you know, applying clothes, let's say, to a, to a body because then the new, a new identity or a, a, an extra level of identity arrives. And so she, she was very much part of that process where at one point, we were presenting almost a sort of rectilinear pair of forms because it's essentially two masses joined by a bridge, joined by a bridge. So we were presenting quite sort of two block forms. And then there was a process of in three dimensions and on quite pure drawings of just, you know, us going away and almost like shearing pieces off to get these canted forms. And I remember distinctly when I came back and presented that to Rana and she just immediately felt that and said, oh, wow, this is really great. And it wasn't an easy thing to pull off because to get those 
sloped surfaces, it meant that the um, the wall makeup had to have um, had to have the ability to angle the supports for that outside wall. So it made it a very non-standing, you know, a, a, let's say a custom building. And so Rana knew that, and she, you know, she, because that's the kind of thing that can also get cut from a project, you know, when you get to, to a stage where the contractors, oh, that's going to be a lot of hassle because then we've got to cut all these things. And it is, I mean, it's true. It is, it is um, more work, a lot more work. There's got to be a lot of planning for that. Anyway, she she never, you know, entertained cutting that back. So I think she had a sense that something special was coming. But I do remember distinctly when the scaffolding came off the building, you know, she actually cried because she was so pleasantly surprised to see how all those sculpt, quite subtly sculpted forms came together. And I think that's another example, going back to your earlier question, about not exactly designing something together, but knowing that as two people you have in your own person, deep down your own person, you have a shared affinity for certain, uh, I don't know if you would say forms or experiences. And so um, I know she feels that that sort of slightly folded, you could call it, or, or uh, adjusted or sculpted facade sits well with her work. And I've done that in um, I've done that approach of, of taking a sort of rectilinear form and then and then carving back at it to lighten it and loosen it and find a sort of, as I said, identity in other projects. But I just think there was a there was a real resonance there in that one because of the work that she does. I think that's what works so well though, is because the space is multi-purpose, it also has to kind of act as a gallery in some ways and it, it does display Rana's work in literally I guess the best possible light but I think one thing that I guess we're kind of coming to from this conversation is the kind of role that architecture has in potentially supporting or showcasing you know artwork but also the fact that art can feel very different within different environments and getting those environments just right is you know equally important. From my side, you know, I would, yeah, this is how Rana's work is Rana's, you know, person. It's her identity, it's her character, and it's a very, very clear track, you know, that she's on. And I think that one wants to, you know, step back and observe that and find out, you know, how you can be supported, but not exactly interrogated. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, it definitely does. For me, working around art and the arts, let's say, but also we haven't really talked about that, or maybe we have a just tiny bit in terms of this view to the cemetery. I feel that art and nature are are you know what you one what one needs to bring in with the architectural discussion so and then people you know moving through spaces and sort of carrying the sense of those disciplines with them i mean it's it's talking about a richness of experience which i think in the end creates calm as well it sounds like maybe that could be you know layering something too much that wouldn't be calm but I feel in the end if you can achieve architectural spaces that have got enough identity to show you art or show you nature or let nature permeate but also in their own right have a yeah, I keep talk, using this word identity, but a bit like they are one of the characters in the scenario. So if there are several characters at play, the architecture, you know, I think should be one. I, I feel like personally, I'm not that interested in a concept of a, a sort of neutral, totally neutral space, let's say for art. But partly because I don't really think the spaces that are generally termed that are neutral, they just became seen as a 
an acceptable and quite known standing. I'm talking about the sort of white box that's lit in a certain way from the top and is is not apparently sort of pushing back. But I think that's such a very distinct and space in the end that I just mean myself as the architect, I want to find, and it sounds maybe boring, but I want to find the balance where the architecture is pushing back a little bit too, but in the end allows something really magical to happen between the different ingredients. So, so let's say again, the people moving through between the, the different essential practices they have, but then coinciding with unexpected, you know, unexpected elements that could be nature or, or art or at sometimes music um and so and light and air um yeah it's i'm sure it sounds quite obvious in a sense but i think it's quite a trick to get the balance right i think that's a really good point actually and rana i'm interested from your side obviously you've got your show on at pitts hanger manor at the moment and that that space was obviously so iconically designed by sir john stone but how did you find his architectural designs influenced you know the work that you created for that space or that you even chose to show within uh, the exhibition there yeah Pitts Hanger um, Gallery and Manor is a space that I've known about for a long time actually since I was a student doing my master's and I, I remember visiting there quite early on and it just being in love with the space, uh, you know, the spaces that Sohn has created and particularly because he um, really uses light as a, almost like a material, as a, as a tool to kind of activate a space. And it's beautiful the way he can, you know, let light kind of seep into spaces that you wouldn't normally kind of see. So to respond to, to the space, was was really a great opportunity and you know what was amazing the show at Mead Gallery which was kind of really was site specific I was responding to the new space at Mead and um, creating works that really fitted that space and what I loved was the challenge of then seeing you know existing works then adapt to fit the gallery and the manor. It's interesting. We often talk about architecture being a, a support or a backdrop, which I think is appropriate. And then maybe forming the, or you could call it a frame for art to exist or to uh, be exuberant or to resonate or whatever. And I think that's true. And then sometimes the art is doing a job in informing the architecture or guiding you uh, between spaces or it's doing a job and this particularly happens in Rana's work at delivering light from one area to another via an extraordinary uh, an extraordinary physical format so I always say when you when you think of light or say if you think of colored light I mean, our tendency is to think that's because there's an object over there that is that colour. But I try and I try and encourage people to think, well, the reason you're seeing Rana's fluorescent coral slither is because that light has made its way all all the way across the room to your eyeball. And um, and I think if the work is quite um, is quite physical or sculptural then it is, in a sense, architectural, if you describe architecture as a manipulation of light and um, and, and a, moder- a way of moderating your experience through space. So I think there's something quite interesting there too, that, that, that the art actually is transformative to your experience of the room. So recently, you know, we had the talk at um, Pitts Hanger, and I think because that is a series of architectural spaces that are are at a level of sophistication there is a really um, interesting conversation where sometimes the artwork 
Rana's artwork I'm particularly talking about dominates and sometimes it is more of a clue and sometimes it's outside in the landscape where maybe um, the landscape is the sort of broader in scale uh, and sometimes it might be a smaller room where the room then in a sense has to die away and I just think that's brilliant if you can find systems where it's sort of one's one's dominating and then and then the other but it it does rely i think on a quite a particular type of architecture i don't mean a particular look but it has to be i suppose um again this uh, sorry to use it again the identity but it does have to have enough of identity and then i think it has to have enough permeability to allow um to allow for some of those occurrences that i'm mentioning to happen yeah i don't suppose i've looked at it like that but i think it's yeah it's, it's a good point rana i guess at this point it would be silly of us not to actually ask what is on show at pixhanger at the moment because i know your show which we have we should probably mention called dappled light is on through to the 11th of september but if our listeners were able to take a look and go and visit the pixhanger before then are you able to tell us what they can expect or almost give them a little bit of a guided tour? Yeah, um, so the uh, as you kind of enter the uh, the Pitshanger Manor and Gallery, um, Outdoors is a work number 814, which is a piece of work kind of made up of uh, toughened coloured glass panels that kind of jut out of the floor. And these glass panels are kind of parallel to each other, but slightly kind of shifting away from each other. And as the kind of the sun rises and sun sets, you get um, light seeping through the work and reflecting onto the floor. So you get coloured shadows on the floor. And this was a work that I made in 2018. And it kind of really makes sense, you know, uh, to be part of that show. And then as you enter the gallery on your right hand side, you'd see a work that I started in 2020, which is consists of fingerprints. and the fingerprints are made up of kind of myself and some students that are able to kind of come and help. And they are, you know, there is a, this is a series of work that I've been kind of developing over the years as a response to my experience that I had in Bangladesh, which, you know, was basically my father had left some land that he was kind of donating back to the community. And in order to do that, you had to go, we as siblings have to go to Bangladesh and sign the paperwork, but also put our thumbprints. And when I went to the registry office to put our thumbprints on, the entire registry office was covered by fingerprint. And that was a kind of a really, I mean, that experience in itself was amazing and incredible and really moving. But what I also loved was this kind of connection with architecture and land, you know, so there was kind of this immediate physical connection with architecture and you had this movement of fingerprints across the wall and it was kind of recreating that movement um, with the piece at Pitts Hanger and then as you enter the gallery you you're kind of you're having to kind of engage with this cloud that is suspended under the skylight the central skylight of the gallery and that skylight has stained glass glazing and so the cloud is kind of suspended under and so in certain lights the colors almost disappear but as you walk around the space the colors appear and so this cloud kind of forces you to kind of move around the space and really experience light um, in its various form if you like and then in that gallery, you have other body of work that really reflect and reflect kind of, um, I guess, my studies in, in uh, I, I kind of say studies, but in response to light. Um, so there's a kind of mirrored tile piece that's on the right hand side that's really re reflective and it's, you know, 
it's kind of mirroring the space but in a fractured way and I I love that as you walk through the space you really see sometimes you see yourself in the piece but broken up and then you know there are other works there's a work that I made during my residency in Istanbul using dyes for lampshade bases and again you would have no idea what this is for but when I was doing that residency and I was asked to pick to work with a workshop, I picked this particular workshop that had these dyes along the wall, the entire wall covered. And it almost felt like it was a city kind of reflected in these kind of form. And um, so for me, there was kind of bringing in this other element into, into this exhibition. And then in the manor, you've also got some reflector towers in the conservatory. And, you know, they are, they're, you know, the conservatory brings in a lot of light. So you really experience them, you know, these towers kind of really glowing. And the other two works are fishing net, which is suspended within the stairwell of the manor. And... That, I feel, really captures the light that Sohn brings into the space beautifully. And then there's a film. It's my first film that I'm showing. And the film is uh, the film consists of photographs that are taken over a period of time that really shows the change of light throughout the year. I think it sounds like a great show. And I, I know we've got the late summer party happening at the Pitsangan Manor in September, I think it is. But hopefully I'll get a chance to go have a look at the show before then because it definitely sounds like it's it's worth a visit. And again, for our listeners, the uh, latest show by Rana Bagham, Dappled Light, is on show at the Pitsangan Museum right through until the 11th of September. So make sure to pay to visit. But honestly, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I'm conscious, Peter, you've got to get back to uh, teaching your students and taking them on their tour around Snowdonia. And Rana, I'm sure you're a very busy woman as too, but we really do appreciate you both taking the time out to chat with us today. It's been a really interesting discussion. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, James. No problem. Well, that should just about conclude us for the latest episode of Temporary Admission. If you liked today's episode, obviously make sure to hit like, subscribe or follow. We really do appreciate it and it does make all the difference. Make sure to tune in next week where we'll be chatting all things NFTs. Until then, stay safe. Speak soon. Every day, We rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers.